Well, when we lived in Indiana, where I was youth pastor and associate pastor many years ago, our little hospital one time brought in some new personnel, and, and they made some changes. And one of those changes was that anyone at all who had anything to do with the hospital, especially those of us who were clergy and then there were staff members and all, they wanted everyone to come and to get a badge, an ID badge. And so, you know, we went in, had our little picture taken, and got this little uh, laminated badge that clipped to our lapel, and it said clergy. I'm going to tell you, that badge was amazing. I could go anywhere in the hospital. Somebody's in ICU. There's already two people in the ICU room. I walk up to the ICU desk, flash my badge. I'm slow walking down the hallway. I get to be the third person in the room. It got me. There were no questions asked when you were wearing the badge and it identified you as clergy. Wherever you needed to be, you could go and you could be there. One of the shows that Charlene and I record on our DVR and watch is Blue Bloods. Uh, periodically on that show, which deals with uh, a family in New York City where there's the former commissioner, the current commissioner, everybody's a cop except for the one renegade daughter who's a prosecutor and all. And it's played by one of the best actors ever, Tom Selleck, plays Commissioner Reagan. Anyway, all of that aside, sometimes Commissioner Reagan will give someone a commissioner's courtesy card. Now, I don't know if that's a real thing or if it's made up for the show, but on the show, the commissioner's courtesy card can be used one time and one time only to get someone out of a minor infraction or to get someone to get a call to the commissioner for something. Um, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a pass. As I was thinking about those kind of free passes, whether it was my clergy badge whether it's that courtesy card, it struck me that sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that in our spiritual lives, we might be able to get a free pass. Uh, we might be able to think that somehow, because of who I am, because of where I've come from, because of my family, because of my heritage, this little sin God's not going to worry about. Because I'm a good person, so you know those little ones God just lets go. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul, in some very straightforward language that is hard to read and sounds very harsh in our 21st century ears, tells us that when it comes to God and his standards, no one gets a free pass. Now, it's interesting as the text that we're going to look at today, as I did some research and looking into this text, it was really interesting to discover that, you know, God, when he led his writers to write, he allowed them to use so many other things to, to make the point. There is a book that was written between Malachi and Matthew in that what we call intertestament period called the Wisdom of Solomon. And if you would ever go to the Wisdom of Solomon and you would read chapters 
13, 14, and 15, you would find that it seems very possible that the Apostle Paul borrowed some of the language from the wisdom of Solomon to write some of the things we're going to read about in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And for me, that does not hurt my theory of my, my understanding of inspiration. It just makes it like, wow, God used everything. And here's the adage. Here's the thing that so many people say. All truth is God's truth. And so that's what we're going to see here. And here's a reason for that. Remember, two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 16. And in Romans 16, we looked at all the different people that were in the Roman church that got mentioned by name. There were probably in the house churches in Rome, there were probably around 200 people all together. But those were all divided up into small groups. And we saw that there were some Jews there, some Jewish believers, and some Gentile believers. And remember... In 49 A.D., Claudius kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome. And so they were gone for about five years. They started coming back, and they came back to these little churches, and now all of a sudden they have a real Gentile flavor. Sometimes it would be tempting for a Jewish believer to think, because I am truly from the line of Abraham, and because I have followed the Torah to the best of my ability, the law, that I am a little better than my Gentile brothers and sisters, that I, I have a little more in with God. I, I'm a little better. And what Paul is going to be addressing here are some things that he's really going to set his Jewish friends up for kind of a bait and switch, he's going to start out in the language we're going to have here today. And, and there, as they were sitting there listening to this read, they would be thinking Gentiles. These are the Gentiles. And this is how bad the Gentiles are. And this is how far they are from God. But, and we'll get to it next week, but I'll tip my hand. Paul gets done with all of that, and, and, and you can imagine in that small little group, in that house church as it's being read, the Gentiles are like looking for a place to hide under their toga, the Gentile believers, and the Jewish believers are going, yeah. And then what we have is chapter 2, Paul says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. What Paul is doing is saying, nobody gets a free pass. Now, There's a word that's going to be used here. It's the word they. They did this. God did this to them. Who's the they? I believe it's a both and. I believe it's all of humanity that Paul's talking about here in verses 18 to 32. But it's also, he's. if you're a Jewish believer, you're hearing Gentiles. Well, with that being said, while our text is Romans 1, 18 to 32, we have to back up just a little bit. So we're going to begin this morning in Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16 and 17 are transitional verses. So Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. If I were to summarize that verse, it would be simply this. 
God's standard is clear and simple. I think sometimes we get caught up and say, oh, it's so hard to follow God. And you know, some of us say, oh, I grew up with so many rules. And I get that. I grew up with a lot of rules. I, the rules that I grew up in in the church that I went to were long and hard to follow. God isn't that way. God's rule is simple. The righteous will live by faith. God's righteousness, he says, is revealed in the gospel, in that basic message of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to the world, died on the cross for our sins, rose again. We talked last week that gospel is, is tied up in the idea of loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. A righteous God requires those who approach him be righteous as well. And you and I cannot become that on our own. We're going to see later on in this book, later on in chapter 3, Paul would quote the Psalms, there is no one righteous, not even one. Only God has the authority and the ability to declare that we are righteous. And to do that, to declare righteousness, a penalty for sin had to be paid. And we've already mentioned that penalty was through Christ. God paid the penalty. And so when we come to faith in Christ, we are declared righteous. We are made righteous in God's sight. And one of the characteristics of righteousness is living by faith, trusting God. In fact, that's one of the things that separates righteousness from unrighteousness. Now, in the very next sentence, and, and I'm going to start, I'm going to read a few verses in a minute, but in the very next sentence then, beginning in verse 18, after God said, you know, we have this idea, this simple and clear following God, Paul writes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We need to define a couple of things. The first one is wrath of God. What is this term, wrath of God? And the second one is wickedness. Here's an interesting fact. The word that is translated wickedness is from the same root word that is translated righteousness. In fact, when I look at this, I don't see wickedness. I see unrighteousness. Righteousness and unrighteousness are polar opposites. And Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness. What is the wrath of God? Some of us see that term and automatically we see an angry person lashing out. And, and for many of us, that's just an inappropriate response. And, and that's where people say, God is an angry God. See, we only want to see a God of love and kindness and all. And, and, and yet, we miss the full picture of God if we don't see that sometimes God has to reveal his wrath. The Greek word that's translated wrath can be translated anger, but it also is more consistently applied when it comes to God as a divine response to evil or a divine response to wickedness. A righteous God cannot not respond to unrighteousness. Paul calls that wrath. 
It's not anger in the sense that God's afraid. It's not anger in the sense that God's been hurt. It's not anger in the sense that God is threatened. Wrath requires a response. When I was in, lived in Kansas growing up, our very next door neighbor was a man by the name of Don Macbeth. Mr. Macbeth happened to be my middle school principal. Yeah. Fortunately, he was a good guy. Fortunately, I didn't get caught. Um, Mr. Macbeth had the most amazing front yard ever. I now know, because I know these things, that it was made of bent, it was sown with bent grass. You say, what is bent grass? Well, the Salina Municipal Golf Course has bent grass golf greens. Mr. Macbeth's front yard looked like, felt like, a golf green. It was amazing. And he babied that. He watered it. He fertilized it. He had the mower, not just the the, the blade going around this way mower. No, he had the real mower, the real blade. It was, an, it was one that he gassed up. It was just like they had at the golf course. He could go in there and set the setting so he would go over his lawn and only cut an eighth of an inch of grass. It was super amazing. And there was not a weed to be found in Mr. Macbeth's lawn. Now, every now and then, Mr. Macbeth might go away for a few days. He took vacations. He, you know, I, I discovered for the first time in my life that principals were real people. Uh, and you know, during the summers, he wore shorts and walked around barefoot on his amazing lawn. And, and he was just like a real person. You know, and some, but one day he came back from a trip and he noticed in his lawn the beginnings of a dandelion. Probably had come from our lawn. And so what did he do? He immediately went into his garage and he got some tools. He got a dandelion digger. And he didn't just go at it. He, he surgically got down there and got as deep as he could. He removed that dandelion. His response to the dandelion was a response of wrath, not anger, but a response of this has to be removed. This dandelion cannot infect my lawn. I have to respond to it. So when Paul says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed, it's not like God is some out-of-control, angry, raging person. It's God saying, I am not going to let unrighteousness continue. I have to deal with it. As we look at the remainder of this passage, we're going to see why God can't allow unrighteousness to continue, but we're also going to see how unrighteousness infects everything and everyone. So let's look at the first six verses here. Paul writes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what 
has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Unrighteousness diminishes God. We've already said who the they is in this passage. If you're a Jewish believer, you're just looking at those Gentiles. If you're someone like you and me, you kind of look out at all humanity. Paul makes it abundantly clear. God has revealed himself to all of humanity through the grandeur of creation. And in sense, creation should be enough to make us be in awe of the power of God. I was listening to something this week, and, and someone said, you know, uh, they think one of the things that separates us humans from the animal kingdom is the sense of awe. You know, uh, we, we go to the Grand Canyon, I'll talk about that in a minute, and we just stand there in awe. Or we get out somewhere where there's no light pollution, and we look up and we just stand and we stare at the stars. There's this awe. Sometimes you'll see, you know, even, even the beautiful snow, you know, that, that you see falling, it just, there's a peacefulness about it. There's this awe. And, and Paul says the grandeur of creation should be enough to cause people to say there's something far greater than me out there and should cause them to start to think about God. Many years ago, we were at Midway Airport. We were embarking on what would be our last ever family vacation. A few weeks after we returned, we took our oldest to college. Shortly after she graduates from college, she gets married. So this was going to be the last time the five of us went on a vacation together. And so we're there at Midway Airport. It was a, it was a big trip. It was, it was one of those trips of a lifetime. Uh, we're waiting to board the plane to take us to Phoenix, Arizona, and there's a gal there, and, and she and I and a couple of the kids start a conversation together. You know, why are you going to Phoenix in, in August? Well, <laughs> it's the only time we got. But, uh, and we said, well, we're flying out. We're going to see my wife's dad who lives in Phoenix, and, you know, we're going to spend some time in, in Los Angeles and uh, at Legoland and at Disney World and the San Diego Zoo, and then we're going to go up and spend a few days at the Grand Canyon. Oh, that'll be a disappointment. I said, really? Oh, yeah. It, you're going to be so disappointed by the Grand Canyon. What do you mean? Oh, you're going to walk up there and go, yep, that's a big hole in the ground, and then you're going to turn and you're going to leave. Okay. You know, kids are looking at me like, Dad, what have you gotten us into? So we get to the Grand Canyon a few, some days later. And we walk up to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And this was before they had, I mean, you could... I think I've told you this before, my, my daughter, my second daughter, had always wanted, when, since she ever saw it in her social studies book, to sit on the edge of the Grand Canyon with her legs hanging over because she saw some explorers in a social, and so she and I sat on the edge of the Grand Canyon with our feet hanging over. It was awesome. It was amazing. I found myself just staring 
just staring out across this vast canyon. At one point, we looked far to the east and as, way out in a distance, we saw a thunderstorm literally happening miles away, crossing the canyon. We could see the lightning going down. It was awesome. The, the grandeur of the Grand Canyon was amazing. We spent the night, not in a tent because I don't do that. We spent the night in a cabin that had air conditioning and running water. And we got up early the next morning, and we went out, and we watched the sun rise over the Grand Canyon. You know what was so amazing? There were probably 150 people or more in this lookout area we were. And I'm listening, and I hear, they're speaking German. Oh, there's an Eastern European language over there. Oh, they're speaking Spanish. All of these nations, there were, some, there were some folks from Japan, there were some folks from China, and, they're all, and we're all watching and waiting for the recreation of a new day. We're all standing in awe of God's creation. Paul says, God's attributes have been known since the beginning. And when people choose not, to see who God was, they begin to diminish God. Paul says, and this is our first one, we'll have three of them, they exchange, because they were not glorify God, they didn't give thanks to God, their thinking became futile. They began to turn away from anything of God and their thinking became futile. It became worthless, as it were. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And look at this. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. When they looked away from the Creator, they began to worship the creation. They exchanged the glory of God for images. And before you and I start pointing fingers at those rank pagans out there, don't forget chapter 2 and verse 1 that says, any of us who think we're better than those sinners out there shouldn't judge. You and I may not worship images created like animals or something like that, but we have to be so careful because we may not have exchanged the truth of God for an image but sometimes we exchange the truth of God we exchange the truth of God for an activity or we exchange the truth of God for a person that we put all of our heart and soul into and 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 hold up on a pedestal or we ex because the reality is anyone anything any activity that gets between me and God is an idol. Idolatry is unrighteousness that diminishes God. Paul's not done. Verse 24, and it's interesting, every time we have this word they exchanged, we have another term, God gave them over. Uh, the first exchange we have, now the first giving them over. What does it mean to give over? That term is an idea of God uh, releasing, as it were. You say, I thought he was going to deal with unrighteousness. Sometimes the worst thing God can do is give us what we think we want. 
So God sometimes releases people to what they think they want, and, he, and that's the judgment. So he gives them over. He turns them over. He, you know, it's interesting. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had all of our, grand, our four grandchildren in this area, the four in this area, we had them over for an overnight, gave their mom and dad a night away. They were, uh, you know, and so, I mean, we had activities and everything else. But on Saturday, they came out on Friday evening. They helped us de-decorate the church. On Saturday afternoon, we took them back. And what did we do? We gave them over. We gave them back. We turned them over to their parents. We turned them over to their authority. That's what God is saying. You exchange the truth of God for uh, idols, then I'm going to give you over to something. And here's what God gave them over to. Therefore, God gave them over in sin, the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, our second exchange, and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over, our second giving over, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Unrighteousness distorts desire. What we see in this section is that God granted humanity the freedom to make the choice between the glory of God and the path of self. When the path of self is chosen, it leads to a self-absorption that constantly leads to a self-destruction. God released them. He turned them over. He let them have their sinful desires. When Adam and Eve determined in the garden that they were being lied to by God, that he wasn't telling them the whole truth, and so they stepped outside of God's boundaries and, and sin entered into the world, God gave them over to the full weight of their choices. Those sinful desires led to, Paul says it here, sexual impurity. In the creation account and the created order, and it's a word, phrase I'll use, it talks about Genesis 1 and 2 when I say that. The created order is so important because it gives us God's ideal. This is what God wants. The created order in Genesis 1 and 2, God created male and female in his own image. And then God commanded male and female to multiply and replenish the earth, to populate the earth. And then, and then uh, the, the writer in Genesis, Moses most likely goes to chapter, what we have is chapter 2, and he brings it down. He sharpens the focus. And, and at the end of Genesis 2, we have Adam being alone and God saying, this isn't good. You know, it's the only thing in the entire early creation account where God says it isn't good. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper. That word helper, it's not an assistant. It's not someone who's lesser. It's not an apprentice. It's an ally. That's the actual way to translate that word because it's a word used of God himself. The Lord is my help and my salvation. And so he makes an ally. He makes one like Adam but different. He makes Eve and together in harmony, Adam and Eve are able to fulfill 
all that God wanted fulfilled as he set it out in Genesis 1. And we end that chapter in chapter 2 reminding that they were naked and unashamed and they were one flesh. There was harmony. There was unity. But once the choice was made to step away from God's boundaries, the entire created order was upset. And you read through the first six chapters of Genesis and you find immorality and you find violence and you find so much so that God eventually in Genesis 6 decides to wash, rinse, and repeat. We call that the the flood. And yet, no sooner do Noah and his family get off of the ark and begin to start the process again that sin rears its ugly head. Paul says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Don't eat from this tree. Did God really say? Think how many times. Does the Bible really say? Does God really say? Maintain purity in relationships. Are you really free? Are you really free from such an archaic standard? Are you really free from such an archaic standard as purity? I mean, come on, there's freedom. Let's let's express ourselves. I don't need God. I just need to find my true self. You know, side story real quick. Um, I don't agree with everything Dr. Tony Campalo says, but he told a great story once. He said he was teaching, he taught at East probably emeritus now at Eastern University in Pennsylvania. And he said a student came in one day and said, Prof, I'm, I'm dropping out for a semester. Really? What are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to go travel. i got to find myself. Campalo said, well, what if you discover you're an onion? What do you mean? Well, he said, if you take an onion and you start peeling back all the layers, when you're done peeling back all the layers, you got nothing. And his point was, discovering yourself is not out there. Discovering yourself is in really in relationship with God. It's in relationship with God through Christ that I find that I have purpose and meaning and significance. When the truth is of God is exchanged for a lie, it seems that he simply backs up just a little bit more and gives humanity over to all that they think they want. And to here we have our second giving them over statement. And I'll say this, as humanity moves further and further and further away from the creative order, Paul says that immorality is taken to extreme levels. I last preached this passage intently on in 2004. It's a much more difficult passage to preach in some ways in 2023 than it was in 2004 simply because of the changes in our culture. Our culture continues to move in a direction that to even provide a critique of humanity or even specifically same-sex relationships is considered bigoted. Many in our culture have largely determined that one's identity is now solely based on their gender than it is on anything related to being an image bearer created in the image of God. 
There are several things that Paul is not addressing here that people try to twist his words to. Paul is not dealing with people who are promiscuous in their same-sex relationships. The language does not allow for that distinction. Paul is not tacitly, uh, <clears throat> Paul is not dealing with temple prostitution here. It's not part of the language. Paul is not in any way tacitly approving same-sex committed relationships. That's nowhere found in the understanding of the biblical text. On the other hand, Paul is not condemning people who have an unexplicable same-sex attraction and yet have chosen not to act on it. Just as we would say to a single person, God's will for you right now is to stay pure in your relationship. I would say to a person that says, man, I just feel drawn to someone of the same sex. Okay, I, don't, I can't say I get that, but I'm going to say this. Here's what God says. God says, then you need to stay single. And you know what? I come alongside you. I walk with you. I listen to you. I learn from you. I help you grow in your discipleship and following Jesus. But in the created order, all sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage is considered sin. And as I say that, may I remind you that all sin is still forgivable when confessed to God. He will, when we confess our sins, He forgives them. The created order is clear. God's design for marriage is between a man and a woman only. In the next section, we're going to emphasize this, but remember again, chapter 2, verse 1, who are you? I am not to condemn, nor am I to castigate. My command is, love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and strength. Love my neighbor as myself. Loving my neighbor as myself does not mean I am going to 100% all the time agree with the choices in life, even when those choices don't seem like choices. It does mean that I still treat each person, regardless of what their life is like, with dignity and respect and kindness. And I should not think I know the mind of God well enough to be able to put meaning to the last verse here, the due penalty. They received in themselves the due penalty in their error. I am not going to say, well, that's why you're getting that. I don't know fully what Paul intended there. I know God does, and I know he'll care for it. Unrighteousness distorts desire. Paul finishes, verses 28 to 32. Furthermore, just as they did not think, them, think it worthwhile to retain the, the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. 
They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Unrighteousness destroys relationships. Our last God gave them over statement comes as a result of those who did not think it even worth it to retain any knowledge of God. So God gave them, whether it's humanity or the Gentiles, God gave them over to a depraved man mind. The word translated depraved is a word that carries the idea of worthlessness. So in a sense, we have a bit of wordplay going on. Humanity did not think it worthwhile to hold on to the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a worthless mind. And the result of that is continuing to do all kinds of things and have all kinds of attitudes that are self-absorbed and destroy relationships. The very thing we were designed by our Creator to have is relationships. And relationships don't work when one part of the relationship is self-absorbed. A self-absorbed person is not a person that cares about you unless you can help them. And Paul has this list that humanity is filled with every kind of unrighteousness. And it's interesting, that word filled, it says here... Um, so where I'm at, God gave them so that they, they became filled, verse 29. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 and verse 18, we read, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Same word used here. So we have this contrast, and, and it's, it's interesting in the Bible, there is not this lot of wiggle room. You're either filled with the Holy Spirit or you're not. You're either filled with the Holy Spirit or Paul says you can be filled with every kind of unrighteousness. And remember again, <clears throat> we're talking about a compendium of things that we'll talk about here of, of characteristics. One of them is bad enough. And, and what he's saying is this is humanity apart from God. He, and, and so he starts, he says, envy. Filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, let's see, where was I? So they were filled with every kind of unrighteousness. And he goes through, they are full of envy, anger at another because of their advantage, murder, taking the physical life of another or assassinating their character, strife, fighting, arguing, bickering, quarreling. Deceit, misrepresentation of the truth, lying. You know, it happens so much in our culture, and it happens so easily. Oh, it wasn't a lie. I was just playing a prank. It wasn't a lie. I just... Malice, to spite another and desire to see them hurt. Gossip, 
talking about others in a negative or judgmental way when you are neither part of the problem or part of the solution. Slander, damaging someone else's reputation. Hating God. The opposite of hating God is, uh, the, hating God is the same as loving self. It's either God or me. We, I, I, if I move him from the shelf, i got to put me up there. Insolent, open, disrespectful speech or behavior. We talk a lot about the loss of civility in our culture. Arrogant, boastful, inventing evil, disguising, devising schemes to hurt someone else or take advantage of them. Disobedient to parents. Yeah, kids, you don't get a break there either, right? You know why that's there? I believe because our parents are the first authority in our lives. As parents, we have a high responsibility to train and to teach our children. As a child, my responsibility, I had one job as a child, according to the Bible. You have one job as a child. Obey your parents. Now, I get it. I know of situations where parents weren't good parents. I worked with teenagers for 12 years, felt like 20, for 12 years. And, and, and we talked about what it means to obey your parents. And what if your parents ask you something, you know, and I said, no, I, I know your parents. I knew all of their parents. I said, none of your parents are going to ask you to go out and rob a bank tomorrow. You know, so you think carefully about what disobedience means. He says, senseless, that's an insensitive nature, refusing to even understand another, refusing to sit down and hear their story. Faithless, not loyal, not trustworthy. Heartless, lack of compassion by choice. Heartlessness, just choosing to disregard anyone else. Ruthless, that's an unforgiving, seeking revenge. These are all destructive they're all, they all complete, they're just the complete opposite of who God is. The complete opposite of what God created relationship to be. The complete opposite of why we are created in God's image. And Paul says not only that, he says they're not only steeped in this sin because they know God's righteous decree. They know that those who do such things are condemned, they just continue to do them and also approve of others who practice them. When we move far, far, far away from God, we move far, far, far deeper into self-absorption and that leads to destruction. And it's interesting, though. You know, it's interesting. All people, regardless of their current behavior or attitude, they're still created in the image of God. And there's a phrase that gets used a lot. It's a phrase that's used by people who know God and people who don't claim to know God. And in the circumstances right, they'll turn to someone, even an adversary, and they'll say, just do the right thing. Can I depend on you to do the right thing? And the underlying assumption is that there is a right thing and that the right thing is known. And in fact, uh, kind of paraphrasing here, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis posits that all human beings have a sense of what is fair. You know, we all do. You, you get a bunch of people in line, somebody cuts in line, hey, 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 that's not fair, you cut in line. There's a standard. We all have this sense of what's fair. We all know what it's like to be treated unfairly. Because we're all created in the image of God. And when we choose to deny that image, to turn from that image, 
Paul gives us a, a word picture of how bad it can get. This has been a lot to absorb today. It pulls every one of us up short. And if we ended Romans here and we just stopped our sermon series here, therapists throughout the area would be having a heyday because all of us would be down and depressed. It's like, well, I'm just a slug. This is not a pretty picture. So here's how I want to close out this sermon today. I'm going to give us all a minute just to be silent in a second. And what, in that moment of silence, instead of focusing on the darkness of humanity apart from God, focus on the God who is above humanity. Focus on the God who invites everyone into a loving, life-changing faith relationship through Jesus. Think about the words that we sang as we opened the service. Your love never fails. It never runs out. It never gives up on me. As bad as Romans 1, 18 to 32 is, we still have Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Take a moment and just reflect on God's love. Lord, this was a lot to absorb. It was a lot to prepare. In all of this that we've seen today, would you remind us again that your wrath was ultimately satisfied as you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to pay for the failure of humanity, to provide life and forgiveness and the path to being declared righteous in your sight. We have all failed. We will fail. But we are reminded today that you love us. That you so love the world that you provided a way. May we never exchange your truth for anything. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name.